Thank you for traveling with Amex Platinum. To your right, you'll see Oceanside Relaxation at a fine hotel and resort property. When booked through Amex Travel, you can enjoy complimentary breakfast for 2 and 4 p.m. late checkout. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and Game Sense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. They are Sports Illustrated. It's amazing. This incredible body of work. I really appreciate the integrity. Everything you do is well done. You guys do a great job. We love it. What can we say? He's Chris Maddox. He's employed by Sports Illustrated. The announcer's got it in for me. There you go. This is the Crossover NBA Podcast. You have a problem with it? Build a team that can beat them. Hosted by the one and only. Oh, thank God. Thank God. Chris Maddox. All right, welcome back to another episode of the Crossover NBA Podcast. Got a great show lined up for you as we enter into what could be a pretty busy time in the NBA. Howard Beck, senior NBA writer over at Bleach Report. He joins me to run through all the news of the week. We've got a call with the general managers with the NBA officials on Thursday, a board of governors meeting on Friday, and hopefully some kind of clarity about when the NBA will return. I talked to Howard about all the different scenarios that are being kicked around in league circles right now. A little bit later on, Jack McCallum, the Hall of Fame basketball writer with Sports Illustrated. He has a terrific new podcast series out right now called The Dream Team Tapes. I talked to Jack about the process of making that uh, that podcast and some of the more interesting levels to it with Michael Jordan, his relationship with Isaiah Thomas, Chuck Daly, Jack McCloskey, their relationship with Isaiah Thomas, all that and much more with the great Jack McCallum. Quick housekeeping note, if you like this podcast, very easy way you can support it. 
Head over to Apple Podcasts, post a comment, leave a rating. It's simple, it's easy, it's free. It's the best way to make sure that we keep doing this podcast week after week. That's it. All right, on to my conversation with Howard Beck. All right, joining me now on the podcast, one of the best NBA writers out there uh, with Bleacher Report. He's also a major star in the Game of Zones universe. He is the great Howard Beck. Howard, you have... Well, first of all, let me say I am envious of your avatar on social media, which is your Game of Zones uh, character. And I, I listened I listened to your podcast with the two co-creators of, of the show, and it, I, I'm not sure how I feel about being told that I was on the cutting room floor. Like, I think at the beginning of the podcast, it's like, well, how do we get everybody in? How do we get Tracy McGrady and Chris Maddox? And I'm like, oh, I was, it was just, this is like getting picked last in kickball. Like, I'm on the outside looking in there. Sad day. That's a tough. That's a tough beat for Chris Mannix. That's 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 rough. I mean, listen. On the plus side, you didn't get torched by a swamp dragon. I mean, Zach Lowe is is, is barbecue now. So, um, you know, I mean, it's it's a high honor getting getting you know torched by the dragon. On the other hand, uh, you're still safe and sound somewhere in uh, the Northeast. So, I I think it was an oppor- It could have been like opportunity missed to have me running from the media Dell to go cover boxing. <laughs> Like I could have been fleeing from the media Dell to cover something that's else. That's a little too close to real life, Chris. I know. <laughs> yeah, well, that's true. We are we are hitting very close to home on that one. So I want to touch base with you, Howard, because as we record this on Thursday morning, um, it, it feels like this should be a seminal week for the NBA. On Thursday night or Thursday afternoon, there's going to be a call with general managers, uh, board of governors on Friday, and those are usually moments where Issues are resolved, certainly talked about at the highest of levels. And I'll tell you, I mean, you talk to a lot of people throughout the league, and the ones I've talked to, I can't get a clear answer on on what the plan is. It just still seems like there's, you know, uh, uh, people passionate about doing things one way on one side, people passionate about doing it one way the other side. The only real strong sense I get is that most GMs I talk to are like, look, we want to do things X way, but if the NBA says we're going to do it Y, we'll do it. We're, like for the, the financial health of the league, we will go along with the flow and not, you know, kvetch too much about, about all this. So, I mean, wh- what do you hear out there about, you know, where the NBA is with, you know, its plans to kind of move forward? Because they will move forward in some capacity, but it's just very hard for me anyway to get a clear answer on, on what it's going to look like. Chris, this is one of those times where when people like us talk about the NBA, what's the NBA going to do? And at a time like this, the NBA more than ever is not an entity. It's a bazillion sub-entities, right? There's what Adam Silver might see as the best vision for how to proceed and resume play. There's what his lieutenants and his advisors and all the people they employed to, to map out possible scenarios for playoffs and next season and all this. There's what they may want to do. There's the 30 owners. And then there's their 30 GMs who may not agree and probably don't necessarily with the owners. And then there's the 30 coaches. And then there's the 450 players and Michelle Roberts. And so, you you know, you have all these constituencies who, like, broadly speaking, could all agree. Yes, we would like to get things going again. Yes, we'd like to, to, to turn the money machine back on so we all get paid and so that we don't just destroy the salary cap and our entire economic structure, not just for this season, but years to come. They could agree on the broad outline. But when it gets down to the details, which is what you're really alluding to, it's, well, all right, how many teams are going to the bubble? Um, for how long? 
Is it a play-in tournament? Is it this World Cup-style uh, pool play? All the, like, the details are the issue now, and how much people – like, how high of a priority is it for you as the Orlando Magic or the Detroit Pistons or whoever to go and play – what is the payoff? Because as Dame Lillard told Chris Haynes this week, and I, 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 I you know, look, props to, to, to Dame for being very honest about this, being candid about it, and not worrying about backlash or, or how people might criticize. He's right. If you don't feel any particular motivation, if it feels like after three months off, you're training just to go there to play a handful of exhibition games so that the playoff teams, the contenders, can warm up against you, and then you leave and you go home again and you're off for another couple months until the next season, then what's what's the point i don't you know I, I absolutely sympathize with that point of view this is a very abnormal situation to say the least and training just for the idea of coming back to play three four five exhibition games or or whatever if they're regular season games that get tacked on the standings it just doesn't feel meaningful and that makes it hard to manufacture your your intensity and your motivation in a game so there's just let, let me give you Howard, yeah. let, on that point. Let me give you the counter argument to that. And look, I respect Damian Lillard for saying what he said, and and I know based on conversations with agents or, and other players even that he's not alone in that thought. Like there are certainly star level players on bad teams that are like, what's the point of me coming back? I mean, the argument is you're coming back not just to serve as exhibition fodder for playoff teams. You're coming back theoretically to help your your franchise resolve the financial obligation they have to regional affiliates i mean that's a big part of all this too sure. so like i mean lillard I, I get it like you don't want to go through a three-week training camp to play five to ten games that that don't really give you a chance to to get into the postseason but at the same time like okay then will you not get paid like if they're if they're doing this for financial reasons players have an obligation to live up to that like you have to you know fulfill your contract and, and sitting out i, I mean if I was the NBA or the Blazers, I'd say, look, you, you, you can feel free to sit out, but you're not going to get paid for this, this period of time. Except, Chris, that we already have precedent for this in that in normal regular seasons, when teams fade out of the playoff picture, they start resting stars and stars start resting themselves. And that, that nagging ankle injury that you've been playing through for a you know, few weeks or months or whatever, you say, you know what, now it's not worth it because we're too far out of, of contention. So we already have precedent for this. Players have already and teams have already, by design, done this in normal regular seasons when we get down the stretch of late March and April. So it's not crazy. Now, these are unusual circumstances to say the least, and it's really critical for the NBA to salvage its season, to salvage its revenue stream. And, and, and I, I, I don't disagree with you that yes, maybe they all have some obligation to just, even if you don't feel motivated, even if you think it's not worth the injury risk, even if you don't think it's worth the COVID exposure risk or the coronavirus exposure risk, maybe they all have an obligation together to do whatever they have to do. And if that means training just to play a few games and then leave again, you do it. But that's easy for you and you and I to say, like, I don't, I'm not going to lecture any of these guys to say you have an obligation or you should give up your paycheck. As I've seen fans screaming, it, it's up to them. There, there are risks involved, um, injury risks, various kinds of health risks, and certainly the coronavirus risks. And it, it's, it's, this is, you know, when you signed the contract, you didn't sign up for two months of sequester in at Disney World without your family, potentially, um, just so you could play a handful of games. So, like, the, the circumstances have changed. So, like, I don't feel mm. like we should, you know, insist on anything 
from anyone. All, all opinions about, among NBA players and coaches, forget the fans, the public, all opinions by them are valid because this is a, a, a very different circumstance and unique risks that they have not had to consider before. Yeah, so look, that's one of the hurdles that the NBA and teams are still discussing as recently as Wednesday from when I talked to a couple of people. Um, who to bring back? How many games to bring people back? Do you go just the top 16? Do you go with everybody and have and finish out some kind of season? Uh, I think that's still uh, on some level being discussed. I think the other issue, like the NBA's past the point of being worried about you know, the optics of buying 20,000 tests. Like, they're just past that. They're, they're going to they're gonna do that. Like, that's, that's not an issue. The NHL is going to do it as well. Um, I think that people feel like it's, it's prevalent enough or it's widespread enough across the country that you don't look like you're hoarding tests uh, at this point uh, in doing it in, in that way. But you, you mentioned the bubble, and oh, they don't love the term bubble. I know that. Like, the, the campus or whatever you want to call it. Um, the more they say campus, the more I'm going to say bubble. Yeah, yeah, I know exactly. <laughs> who to bring in there? I think is still a very interesting question because, look, I mean, the the safest way to do this is to bring the 16 teams there, bring the coaching staff, a minimal amount of personnel, quarantine them all in one large location, and push forward. But you saw the reports this week out of ESPN. You know they're going to allow players to bring a certain member of family members down there and that's great for the players but doesn't that you know naturally increase the risk that you know you could have widespread infection if you've got you know a mom and her kid out in the disney world campus and one of them contracts it and passes it on to dad who goes to practice who passes it on to some other people i mean there's so much unknown howard about the spread of this virus that this, this just feels like it's it's an almost an unnecessary risk. I understand players don't want to go down there alone. I get that, and I can understand that. But in order to ensure the safest possible environment, shouldn't the goal be to minimize the number of people that are involved with it? Yeah, um, I've been saying that this entire time, Chris. I feel like like it's a, there's a pretty basic principle here when it comes to the risk, the risk of spread, the risk of players contracting it, spreading it to each other, and all this. Um, the fewer bodies, the, the, the less the risk. The more people you bring down there, the more people you put in the bubble, the more risk there is. Now, if it's a really airtight bubble, um, to take it one step further, then maybe it doesn't matter. Maybe you could have 10,000 people in the bubble and there's no risk because it's going to be absolute lockdown. But I think that it's pretty clear that people don't want absolute lockdown in the first place. And, and Disney World is reopening. Yeah. Like Disney World is starting to well, the process of reopening. Right, but we don't expect that like the, you know, the players or their families and their day-to-day routine in the NBA bubble are going to be intersecting with the general public's bubble of people who are going to ride the Matterhorn. So um, I, I think we can assume, while we don't have the details, and that's the big thing here, all these questions we ask, all these, these, th- these things we discuss, it all really depends on how the NBA sets this up and we don't know those details yet. So we'll have a, we'll be able to judge us a lot better pretty soon, presumably. Um, but I would say, generally speaking, it's very clear. Fewer people is better than more people. Fewer teams is better than more teams from a risk management standpoint, from a logistics standpoint. Um, and also just, I, I just think that at a time like this, we cannot be caught up in things like a, a quaint notion of fairness. Oh, well, the Pelicans were only this far out of the playoff. There's no fairness at this point. The coronavirus has rendered the whole world an unfair place. And so you, you cannot quibble. Now, it's easy for me to say, 
I'm not Zion or I'm not David Griffin. I'm not the, a Pelicans fan who wants to see that happen. Like, I get it. I just think that at a time like this, you streamline it. You do what you, is necessary to get the season done or the playoffs done and a champion crowned with the least amount of risk possible, the least amount of impact on the broader society possible. And, and that's that. So again, easy for me to say, because I don't have to worry about the dollars lost, but I think broadly on principle, yeah, bring the eight top eight in the East and the top eight in the West, go play the playoffs. And if you have to do best of three first round, I'm all in for that. Cause I think that would be more fun anyway. Uh, best of five, second round, go to best of seven for conference finals and finals, whatever. But you, you have to, I think, I think minimize the number of people and minimize the, the amount of time that everybody has to spend there. Two things. One, you're a big Matterhorn guy. Is that your, your Disney oh, Matterhorn's, ride? Matterhorn's that... great. Yeah. <laughs> I was always a big Thunder Mountain guy. Spa- uh, Thunder Mountain's pretty good. Space Mountain's phenomenal. Space Mountain. right, flying around in the dark in there. You also forgot the Sacramento Kings, by the way. Don't exclude them from the disappointed list if they uh, don't come back. Still right there. Three games back, Howard. In the mix. I mean, those feisty Kings. Mathematically possible. Still possible. I still. I, you brought. We, we should. I, I think we should just do what they did in Game of Zones and merge them with the Suns and, and see if the Sun Kings can make a run. <laughs> Maybe merge all three of those teams together and make them a playoff team. You're gonna have put it together a pretty good team with the uh, the Pelicans, the Blazers, and uh, and the Sacramento Kings. I don't know how many Kings would make it, but uh, <laughs> yikes! Aaron Fox is making it. Come on, Buddy Hill. Darren, but he's uh, bench guy with Damian Lillard. Lillard, McCollum, and Fox, pretty good backcourt combination. Um, one thing you mentioned was, you know, go best of three maybe or do something shorter. You know, how concerned should the NBA be about the viability of the champion this year? I mean, it, it seemed to me when Silver came out on his call, I believe it was with the players a while back. It's hard to, to figure out what, which one of these calls was which. But he said he wanted to do best of seven. He wanted to be part, this to be a beginning in the first round, best of seven all the way throughout. And I interpreted that as the NBA's way of trying to, you know, protect the integrity of the postseason, to make it as legitimate as possible. I'm not sure that's possible. I think you're going to always have people that are going to say this is an asterisk season. God forbid the Lakers win and LeBron gets another title. It's going to be, I mean, it, this is going to be talked about for the end of, till the end of time with LeBron's championships. But, I mean, how, how important do you think it is or should it be for the NBA to, to crown a champion this year and... I mean, should they? I mean, should they say that the whatever comes out of this postseason is is the the 2020 NBA champion? Well, I mean, there's no point in having a champion if you're not going to say that this is just as legit as any other champion of any other season, right? So um, now, I think it is fair to, to say because we know just how human nature is, how fans are, and how we in the media are. The more things you change, Chris, the more variables you change up to make this more foreign to prior postseasons, the more this feels strange and an outlier, the more likely it is that more people will see it in a skewed way and start slapping on one asterisk, eight asterisks, whatever. That said, you know, we just talk about the Spurs as a great dynasty that won five championships. We don't say, well, you know, Tim Duncan's first one was an asterisk season because it was a 50 games in 90 days lockout season. Nobody says that. It was talked about at the time. And some people still say that, oh, that still looked at that way. I don't think so. I, 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 I never hear anybody bring up the 99 championship and say it was invalid. It's just one of Tim Duncan and the Spurs five championships. Um, you know, you can look at the other side of that and say, well, the Knicks made it as an eighth seed to the finals, which is in- incredibly unusual. Maybe that doesn't happen in a normal season, but we don't, 
we don't really invalidate it. We don't invalidate LeBron's first championship with Miami, which was a 66-game lockout season. Like, that one never comes up. Um, so I don't think – now, this will be different than either of those because of this long stoppage of play. And if they start doing things like if they get cute with plans or World Cup-style pool play and all this – that's when people are going to say, okay, now you've changed too many things. It's one thing to have an interruption of play and then a bubble, but now you've changed the way the postseason even works. I would be more concerned, Chris, with them changing those kinds of things about how you even make the playoffs and the structure or going one through 16 than I would be about shortening series. Because we've had – best of five first round was still in use up until 2001, two, somewhere in there. Mm -hmm. um, if you go back far enough – It was fun too. What's up? It was fun, too. And it was fun. It was great. It was better. I, I, I would rather have best of five first round, especially because the first round now is, is almost unwatchable at times because you know going in, the one and two are automatically advancing. Seventh and eighth are fodder. Um, I, I would much rather have at least the, the, the uh, illusion of suspense with a best of five. And if you go back far enough in NBA history, you'll find best of three as well. Like, these things have been done. And we don't invalidate any of those postseasons or those champions. So I would be more in favor of condensing the postseason by doing that. They won't because of money. But that, to me, is, is more easily uh, uh, accepted and still feels valid than these other things like 1 through 16 or pool play or play-ins or bring all 30 and do single elimination. Those are the kinds of things where you get too cute for the purpose of, you know, fan service or revenue or whatever. And again, these are not small things, but those are the kind of things I think that make this now an extremely unusual postseason and will lead to more long-term sense of, of, well, that's an asterisk season and an asterisk champion. All that said, I'm not a big asterisk guy unless something crazy happens like LeBron, Giannis, Kawhi all go down with the virus in the, in the course of the postseason and like, the Grizzlies win the championship. Okay, I think we'll all agree at that point. <laughs> that may, I'll do respect to the Grizzlies. That would be a, a big, pretty, a pretty big asterisk. Oh man, yeah, you're right about that. You know, the the only the pro asterisk debate, if you want to call it that, is that in '99 and these other shortened seasons, yes, they started late, but they continued. Right, so you had a 50 game season in '99, but once it began. There was no stopping, and you went right. into a playoffs with everybody kind of where they were. This, I mean, if it really begins in mid-July or even early August, you will have quite literally the same amount of time that passes between the NBA Finals in a normal season and when a season picks up in October, you know, packed in there. Like, you will have, like, four months. It'll be four months in between when the season went on hiatus to when the season uh, ultimately uh, decide to come back three, four months, something like that. So like it, it really does feel like a whole new thing. Like this postseason is going to feel like something entirely different. And look, we see it out there. Like Ben Simmons is going to play, you know, for the Sixers when this comes back. You have Boyan Bogdanovic, who is uh, done for the rest of the year, who was in the jazz lineup when this whole thing went down. On a, a different scale, I mean, you've got Mike Conley with the best-looking basketball home gym I've ever seen, like it is Columbus, <laughs> Ohio place. Meanwhile, on the flip side of it, you've got guys like Jason Tatum and Giannis who are saying things like, we haven't really done anything. You know, there's been no, we haven't picked up a basketball in months. So I think that's the strongest argument that this won't be a real championship season, that it's just, it's something entirely new and should be considered, considered accordingly. But 
I mean, that's that's really the only part. Yeah, of it. And, and that's the thing, Chris, and, and, and you're right, all of that. Um, you, I mean, we can say that, well, they're all in the same boat. Everybody had to deal with the same challenges. But, yeah, Mike Conley has a full gym, and a lot of guys don't even have a basket available to them to shoot at, much less all the weight training equipment and everything else. And guys are going to come back in various states of, of, of conditioning or lack of conditioning, um, they're going to, guys are going to end up getting hurt probably just in the training camp period that wouldn't have otherwise. And then we've just got the fact that some guys have been magically healed. I mean, it's like, it's like in a video game where one day Giannis has this bad knee injury that may knock him out for weeks. And then you like, you hit like the reset button or you go and, and fiddle with like the, uh, the, 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 all the settings. And now Giannis is magically healed because now he will be healed and Ben Simmons and, and Joel Embiid will be fine. And, but Bogdanovich, as you point out, is, is out. So some things have fundamentally changed in this long gap. And, you know, I, I don't think those things will be remembered long-term as, as factors that affect the, the, the um, legitimacy of, of this postseason or the championship. But again, if, if, if the virus, in, 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 you know, encroaches on the postseason, if the virus knocks out serious, important players and those teams lose as a result and people will say, well, it's just like turning an ankle. Well, no, it's actually not. This, this, is, this is different because the sprained ankle, maybe you come back in a game or two. The virus, you could be recovered from in a couple of days, but you still have to be quarantined for 14, which is, the, the, which is how long it takes for a seven-game series to be played. Um, it's not like an injury, Chris. It is far more uh, serious in a lot of ways and requires a different kind of, of, of response from the league. So I, I just think that if the virus encroaches, and maybe it won't, but that would be the thing that will will taint it the most potentially. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, it it presents a whole host of of new challenges. Uh, last question for you. You know the, you know the NBA is one way or the other going to start next season in December, maybe even January. Who knows? I don't think there's a, a firm timetable on that uh, as of yet. To get back to a normal schedule, they will have to do something radical at some point. You know, you'll have to either really shorten up the offseason one year or play fewer games in the next year to get back on that regular calendar. What do you think the chances are that we have seen a, a, a permanent change in the NBA calendar, that this is what it's going to look like moving forward? It, it's such a funny thing, Chris, because people hadn't really seriously in a public way discussed the idea of shifting the NBA calendar. Hey, what if we started in December and ended in the summer and then we can avoid so much head to head with football and we can take advantage of the summer being only baseball, blah, blah. Like that wasn't even much of a public discussion until uh, it was raised at the Sloan conference on a panel discussion, literally days before the league shut down and all, and, and, and all of our lives changed forever. And I think because of the combination of that and where we are right now, now it feels like, it's this discussion with some weight to it. Well, the NBA was already discussing this. Well, no, some people, including Steve Coonan from the Atlanta Hawks, had floated this at times. But I don't know that this had any momentum behind it. Well, now, out of necessity, maybe it does. But, one, to make it a permanent change, you don't do it just because we're in this weird situation and, well, I guess we just have to do it. No, you need to study it, de- de- deliberate it, and decide, is this something we really want to do for the long term? Because to your point, there are other ways. You could knock All-Star a week down to just a few days. The break could be down to a couple days again instead of a full week. You could steal back days. You could do more back-to-backs for one season and shorten the season. You can find ways to get back on track 
if you wanted to get back on track in that way, or you could stagger it. One year you're starting mid-November, the next year you're finally starting in late October again, and the next year you're starting mid-October. Like you could, over the course of a couple of years, you could get yourself back on track. Um, the question is more of a long-term policy matter. Does the NBA really believe that it's better off with a shifted schedule that starts in mid to late December and ends in August? And I'm going to tell you right now, Chris, I don't think people should make any uh, quick assumptions on this one because the league can decide that that's what they want, but the players, that's a CBA issue. That's a collective bargaining issue. And if the players don't agree, then it's not going to happen. And I think the players are more likely to oppose it than the league is because the players are young guys with young families and kids. And right now the NBA schedule and the school schedule, the academic schedule line up. So when the season's over, you go on vacation with your family and you can take the kids to, I don't know, Disney world. Um, but if you, if you change the, the, the calendar permanently and you wipe out the summer with NBA playoffs, now not everybody's in the playoffs. I get it. Um, but still, you, you know, uh, LeBron James and Steph Curry, Kevin Durant, the guys who are used to playing, you know, deep James Harden, Westbrook, all these guys. If you have families with kids or if you're on player on teams that expect to make deep runs, you don't want July, August wiped out by NBA games. So I don't, I don't take that as a given because the players do have to sign off and it, it, it's, it's a, it's a radical change without a clear payoff. Yeah, I agree with that. And I, I do think that if the ratings are astronomic, you know, this year, or even if they decide to do it next year in a full cycle, just to, you know, kind of get everything right in the post coronavirus world, if the ratings are really high, I think that that will certainly increase the number of people in league circles that will want to do it. I mean, it certainly will make television partners more willing to do it, which has been a problem, uh, you know, in the past, them not wanting to put on finals games in July and August. Yeah. So no, you, you, you have to sell it. You have to sell it to a lot of different constituencies again. And yeah, if there's a clear benefit to it, ratings boost, and you can now see that, okay, this is our, our this is our, this is how we're going to start, you know, we're going to increase our revenue again, or what the next TV deal will look like based on these ratings. Uh, yes, there's a, there's some momentum that could come behind that, but it has to be demonstrated first. And maybe it won't be. What if, you know, like they're going to start this next season late out of necessity, late December, January, whatever it's going to be. And what if the ratings are all the same? What if the finals next July are no different than they were in June of 2017 or whatever. Um, then you're going to say, all right, well, so where's, where's the payoff? Why are, why are we doing this? Well, we're stuck on this calendar. No, you're not. You, you can always readjust as we were discussing. There are, there are ways to tailor it. And yeah, even if you had to, well, I don't think they're going to eliminate games if, if they can avoid that, but you can find ways to, to get back on track. So um, I think there's the, the jury's way out on the idea of a permanent uh, calendar shift. Yeah. Yeah, I'd be interested to watch. Uh, Howard, appreciate your time, man. If you uh, happen to converse with your Game of Zones friends, if they had like an avatar of me that was on the cutting room floor, I will certainly take it uh, and and just wear it as a badge of honor as as somebody it, that was left out of the equation. It might be like a little dusty on the floor, like in the pile of all the other like scraps from the series, which is now concluded. But uh, I will ask the fellas... Craig and Adam Malamut, the geniuses behind Game of Zones, I will ask them if there is a Chris Mannix head floating around either in, in literally in a trash can somewhere in the corner of their studio or like, or just, if, if, you know what? You may still virtually exist, Chris. You may be, you, I know. you could just be a floating head in, a, in, a, in a, 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 a document somewhere in some graphics program for all I know. Um, you know, we'll, we'll see what we can do. 
in a digital trash can with Tracy McGrady and Tim Bontemps <laughs> and a handful of the rest of us that uh, that were left out. Uh, Howard, appreciate it, man. Stay healthy out there, and uh, we'll talk soon. Always a pleasure, Chris. Thanks, man. There's no distance too far for the perfect trip. Hi, checking in for... Or the perfect table. Hey, where are you? And when you get access to Resi Priority Notify with your Amex Platinum card. Hey, this looks amazing. I'm so glad you made it. And travel benefits at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel. It's worth the trip. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with a king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. All right, joining me now on the podcast, he is a longtime writer over at Sports Illustrated, basketball Hall of Famer, one of the great writers uh, covering the league of all time. And, you know, with his newest project, he's sure to tell you how to save 10% on brawn appliances because that's big for him. He is the author, creator of the Dream Team Tapes, which is the newest podcast series out. You can check it out anywhere you download podcasts. It is terrific. The first three episodes are up right now, and every other one you can catch every subsequent week. He is Jack McCallum. What's up, Jack? Yeah, hi, Chris. I guess you're used to having advertisers. I had never, uh, when I found out I had to read an ad for Braun Schaefer, and in the middle of the script, it says, say something funny that ties Braun to the, to the dream team. So, uh, you know, I swear this is true that I felt so stupid doing this. That day they sent me a razor. My wife took me in the backyard, used the clipping. So uh, it, I should have put that on the podcast because 
I actually did use the brawn razor. My wife did to shave my uh, shave my hair. So I, that's a plug. Whether or not you include it in your podcast, absolutely true. No, the the only thing that would have made that ad read better is if you had said that. Say something funny about brawn yeah, razor. Right. Like enter laughing, you know, like the stage direction. (laughs) Just read straight from the notes. It doesn't matter. Um, Like it's a terrific podcast, and it's you know, I I guess there's a lot of questions about the genesis of it. And I mean, first of all, you had to dig out some tapes. I mean, I I save a lot of stuff, Jack. I mean, the art of saving all these tapes was that intentional, or did you just kind of stumble across it? I can't say, you know, I don't know where something is from yesterday, but when I got done this project, the book was 2012. For some reason, I knew that this could kind of be preserved, should be preserved. Probably was a good idea because Clyde Drexler denied something that he said. And I said, Clyde, you know, man, if you want to go on a show, I have it on tape. What can I tell you? So about two years ago, these guys wanted to option the book to do a documentary about it. We know there's already been a Dream Team documentary. This would have been a different direction. Um, So they optioned my book, and they found out that I had these tapes. And I didn't know. I just had them in a pile. And I took them out there. And, you know, fortunately, I didn't have to do it. They transcribed them all, and it was like everything. Now, the documentary, like so many things in Hollywood – it's sort of in a, you know, kind of a turnaround, who the hell knows. But then had the idea to do a podcast with the uh, with the audio. Uh, you know, I didn't know the word five or six years ago, probably. But it turned out to be hopefully a pretty good uh, format for it. So Yeah, I mean, the book is, is terrific. Back in 2012, you wrote about the 1992 Dream Team. And this is, uh, what would you, would you call it a follow-up on that? I mean, what would you call the podcast itself? You know, when I went to do it, um, it's not me reading from the book. I mean, who the hell would ever want to hear that? The way I did it was try to tell the story. I didn't even look back at the book. I swear, what I did was find out the audio that was good and that came across good and that was clear. There are some times when... You know how it is when you conduct interviews. It's a conversation. So once in a while you cut in or you say you laugh you know, or you bring, you know, it's an art. And now this time I'm listening to sometimes they go, will you shut up if I would have just kept on going, you know, but I didn't know 10 years ago when I was doing the interviews, there was going to be a podcast. So I kind of built the story of it around the good audio that I had and the audio that I really needed that doesn't come out good. Like I was walking around Spokane with John Stockton. I, my rationalization is, well, I'm making it sound authentic. And once in a while I have to repeat, I don't know whether you heard that or not, but uh, this is what he said. So I, you know, I hope it told a story through their, uh, through their words, kind of, you know. Uh, no, the audio really adds value to it, I think, because... That's the only, I'll get- be honest, that's the value that it has. It doesn't, <laughs> I, I mean, I think I can link the story together pretty well, but I, what it is, is the power of these... When you work on a project, uh, you know how it is, you get sick of it. And I got done this thing, and I didn't listen to it for a long time. And I went back and listened to it, and I realized just hearing those guys talk 
is what kind of gives the whole thing to it in in my opinion no yeah because you can sort of hear their tone you know kind of the way they're you know speaking the words and it, it adds some some gravity to it for sure uh, to go to go back to the beginning of all this I mean 1992 you're going to Barcelona to cover the dream team like at that time how aware were you of like the significance of that moment that this was going to be a team that they probably would talk about for a long time the, the story of this uh, you know kind of goes back to the 80s because I started covering it now you were only two then when I started covering <laughs> you always managed to make an old man joke somewhere on Twitter so be Somewhere. sure you do that. I mean, I started covering them uh, in the early 80s. It was perfect. And it wasn't like at Sports Illustrated, people said, well, NBA was the third sport back, uh, third sport back then. I go, no, it was the fifth sport. <laughs> we had the NFL, Major League Baseball, college basketball, uh, college football, and then came the NBA. So it was sort of this afterthought. So what happened, it was just such a perfect time that – and even though this little club of people that was covering it, you know, I mean, certainly Bob Ryan, who had been around forever, Bob, uh, Jan Hubbard, you know, Mark Heisler out in LA, Jeff Denberg in Atlanta. So we're not very smart, but you could see this thing rising. You know, you could, for once you knew that you were on some kind of thing that was gonna have lasting significance. So believe it or not, uh, by the time you got to Barcelona, we did kind of understand it. And I don't understand, you know, anything. And it has proven to be this almost uh, anomaly. Like when I teach college, my students will still, one of their frame of reference will be Michael Jordan. And I get to the point where every semester I ask them, why are you still talking about Michael Jordan? I mean, you have LeBron, you have Steph, who's one of the most, you know him, engaging people in the history of, and it's still like Jordan, you know, and Barkley is still in the middle of it, and Bird is still in the middle of it, and Magic is still in the middle of it. So I was just so lucky to have been in the middle of this thing that we could see rising and that still has significance today, luckily. So one of the great parts about the book is is that you get everybody, right? And you are able to kind of tell the story of each of them you know, that dates back to, to the dream team as you're, as you're putting together the book, are, are you thinking like, if I don't get everybody, I can't do this. Or is it, if I get 10 of the 12, I can still pull it off. Well, uh, you, you know, this feeling, uh, to me, the hard part is not writing it. I'm not going to claim now that I sit down and just start breezing through, but to me, getting everybody is like 90% of the angst. That's the only thing that makes my heart uh, beat. And I knew it was going to be a struggle with these guys just because you not only have to get them, but you got to get them for an hour or an hour and a half or two hours when they're willing to talk away from everybody coming up to them and asking for an autograph and stuff like that. So that was the challenge. And uh, the one guy I had, the book was in galleys, meaning it's kind of finished. But uh, I hadn't gotten Bird for whatever variety of reasons. You know, he had canceled once. I went out there one time, and they were making a trade on draft day, and he couldn't talk to me. And there was enough about Bird in there that I could fake it, you know, that it looked like. But it was bothering the hell out of me 
and uh, it was a week before I was going in for a prostate cancer operation. And I called up his secretary for the, you know, 11th time. And I said, tell Larry that if I die on the table, my last thought was that you, he blew me off for the book. So Bird gets on the phone. Yeah, yeah, what is it? What the hell you want? You know, blah. and I said, no, I got to come out there. I talked to everybody face to face. I talked to Jordan face to face. I got to see you face to face. So that was on a Friday afternoon. On Monday, I flew out to Indianapolis, pay, probably paying, you know, $10,000 for the flight, you know, three days in advance. And Bird was like everybody. He was great. And so the, answer, the short answer to your question was, it was very important for me to get all 12 of the guys. And when I had Larry, uh, that's kind of what I finished the, the book with, kind of the Bird, the Bird chapter. What was your relationship like with Larry leading up to that? I mean, you'd obviously written about him a lot in your time at SI. My, you know, my relationship with all these guys was, I would say it was, uh, it was basically professional. I mean, you know, you've hung, you, you know, you've had people that you're closer to than other people in this business, but they're not really, I can't speak for you, but they're not really friends. Michael, you know, Barkley's not calling me up, you know, <laughs> Hey Jack, how's the wife and kids? You know, it's, it's just not going to happen. So my relationship was always pretty professional and I was very always leery about and I'm doing it again, glomming on, that I was lucky enough. I've been writing about these guys since the 80s, <laughs> yeah. since, since 1984. It is now, how many years later is that? 94, 14. It's going to be 40 years later. Mm -hmm. So that really, and somebody said something to me one time, don't you feel you're glomming on to these guys? Now I have a podcast. I had a book. I basically, that was my beat. And the answer is yes. So in the intervening time between me leaving the beat and Sports Illustrated and being semi-retired, I didn't, I didn't keep in touch. Charles, I saw. Charles, I saw two or three times. I don't think I saw anybody else, really. And so, but when I went back, uh, I don't want to put too fine a point on it, but it's almost like, I'm still in the club. You know that I was with these guys in the 80s. They understood this journey that they took. And just by dint of having been there, I had kind of a, uh, a foot up. And I really think without them thinking about it, that's how we all kind of look about it. You were all on this coaster going up, and Jordan was in the lead car, and Larry and Magic were right behind him. And I'm on the 27th car, but I'm still on the roller coaster. <laughs> yeah. I'm still on the ride. That's how I look at it. As you were, were reporting the book, I mean, you covered that team extensively. You were as close to it as you could possibly be at that time. I mean, how much of what you were being told was revelatory, was new, was something that like, wow, I didn't know that was really going on? I, a, a lot of it, Chris, because... When you're, I remember when I started the book, I told my agent who probably got any money that I got based on Jack's going to tell the story of the dream team in Barcelona. And I remember telling him, Barcelona is not the most interesting part of this. You can't, uh, you can't go to practice. You know, you can't go into the, you've covered 
Olympics. I don't know how it is in, in yeah. boxing. I think boxing is probably easiest, right? You go into the locker room and everything. You can't go into the locker room afterward. It's Olympic rules. So to a certain extent, what you got in Barcelona uh, was sort of what you see, what you got. Fortunately, Charles Barkley went out on the Rombles every night for a week. And one of my stories for Sports Illustrated was about following Barkley around, you know, as he went to restaurants and bars on, on the Rombles. And back in 92, um, there wasn't social media. So I wasn't tweeting about it. I wasn't writing for the website between it. You know, so there was a lot of this stuff that was kind of uh, uncovered. So when I went back to them, so that was a good thing when I went back. And what I went back, what I got out of it in 2010 that was revelatory, 2010, 2011, was it's 18 years later, what did this mean to these guys? What, you know, they had had time. They had a lot of different careers. They'd gone off in different directions. What did this mean to them? And fortunately, it was like so important. You know, it was so seminal to their, exper uh, their experience overall. The only one that I would say backed off from that a little bit was Michael. And that's because 84 had been so important. Mm -hmm. 84 blew him up. You know, 84 was the 84. There's a great team in the Olympic team. I'm talking about him, Patrick Mullen, uh, a great Olympic team. They ran through the domestic Olympics in L.A. Michael goes into the league. My God, gets, oh, $100,000 from Nike. How are they ever going to make this back? You know, <laughs> so 84 kind of launched him. But everybody else, it was real. Everybody, including Michael, it was a really important experience. Man, what what was, I mean, Barkley's a recognizable figure. And in one of the episodes I listened to, you talked about, you know, just how big a rock stars these guys were when they got to Barcelona. You're talking about kind of going to their hotel thinking you could just walk in, but you know, maybe not. Kind of surrounded in an almost a Beatles-like atmosphere. If Charles is walking around, I mean, what, how was he able to do that? He just he had this knack, and I said to him I think I said to him the last time I saw it, I can't remember whether it's on it is on tape. I can't remember whether it's in the podcast. But I said to Charles that exact question. He had a knack. Like he would keep, he would know the people. He would look into somebody's eyes and he would know, that guy's too freaking crazy even for me. I got to keep moving. Or this woman would do something and Bar said, I better not, I better not go there. He had this knack. And I said to him, why can't you do a little bit of that? Why don't you tell Michael I guess I said it jokingly, like, can't you teach Jordan how to do that? Because Michael by that time had become a bit of a hermit. It came out a little bit in the documentary, and I certainly have a, a real sense of it, even going back to 92, 93. That's when we're talking about. And Charles said, no. He said, my degree of fame is completely different than Jordan's. He goes, I'm famous and people know who I am. But I don't have this kind of godlike thing that people are clutching on. They will follow me from a distance. They know I'm fun. He said, it's a completely different level from Jordan. And I found that really interesting. I still think Charles has a knack for it that you kind of have to adopt. But he thought that he was just almost famous enough 
that he could pull it off and that Michael, even were he inclined to do it, which he was not, could not have pulled it off in the same way. It would have been a completely different drag on him than it was on Charles. I, I agree with you about Charles because even to this day, he's like that. Like I, I can, you know, during playoff series, I walk through like the Renaissance bar and there he is just kind of sitting there and not being standoffish either. Like if you want to engage him, he will engage you. Like yeah. he might've had a few too many, but he will engage you with that. Yeah, exactly. And if he has to shut something down, like I've seen him, I've seen him be able to shut it down also. And I mean, you're talking about a guy with that gift that, I mean, I've been around a lot of guys, not just in basketball. And you have also, he's got to be number one in that respect. I mean, just being able to thread the needle between being a, a sort, of, sort of a regular guy and being uh, somebody that people gravitate to. And to a large extent, the enduring fame of the Dream Team. I mean, okay, Jordan just had a 10-hour documentary. They're not making one on Charles. But has anyone done better than Charles? No one has come close to remain. You know, Jordan regains that level of fame just by being Jordan back then. Mm -hmm. That's why Michael has his fame. Charles keeps on being Charles every year. Bird doesn't keep on being Bird. Uh, and nobody else, let's be honest, matters that much, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, Carl, Patrick, Clyde, Molly, God bless them all, but they don't, there's that magic four, right? Mm -hmm. Michael Magic Larry, you know, Michael Magic Larry Charles. And Charles has done better than uh, than any of them. Charles will, I mean, his gambling always cracks me up because whenever he gets questioned about it, he'll say, yeah, so I make a lot of money. I gamble a lot of money, so I make a lot of money. It's just he's... He's he's reached this point where he can kind of say anything in American culture. You know, I went out to do this story on him. I think I had left SI by then, but I was still doing a lot of work there. 2009, maybe. He appeared on that Hank Haney golf show. Mm -hmm. Uh when Haney, <laughs> Haney had this idea that Charles's swing was problems was physical. And therefore I, Hank Haney, who was teaching Tiger Woods at the time, could correct it. I said, Hank, it's mental. It has to be. I can take my grandson and he can go from here to here with a golf swing. <laughs> Charles is was one of the great athletes in the world and he can't get through a golf swing. It's got not, you know, and sure enough, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't something to do with a golf swing. It's something in his head. Anyway, Charles had just got done his DUI serving. And I, when I started, to, he had just finished that. He had gotten a DUI in Phoenix and he had gotten in trouble for it. And he did a weekend in jail. I can't remember whether it was 24 or 48 hours. And so I said, let's get this out of the way to begin with before we go golf. You know, tell me what uh, – and he just looks at me. He goes, Jack, I I'm not going to make any real scripted apology. I effed up. Sometimes I drink too much. I went to prison. I'll try not to do it again. I hope it doesn't happen again. And I remember writing in that story that probably had I been his advisor, I would have advised to say something else. But being a journalist and kind of somebody who 
somewhere along the line has maybe had one drink too many. Mm-hmm. I said, to be able to give this unscripted kind of honest response to it, there's not many people that could really do that and pull it off. You know, there's, mm-hmm. there's, I don't know where the list is, but uh, there's not many people on it. No, it it works too. I mean, if you just kind of fall on your sword, a lot of times you wind up being forgiven a lot exactly. faster. You, you don't been. end up sweeping up after you. You know what I mean? Once you tell the, once you tell the lie, it's funny. You know, this Jordan doc has been going on for ten hours. Now that went on for ten hours. Now there's a cottage industry of everyone. Whoa, wait a minute, Horace. <laughs> Here's what Horace said. Here's what Craig Hodges said. Here's what Pippin said, you know. Stacy King. Stacy uh, King was on Stacey TV King talking. It's all plugged in. You know? So uh, there's this dust trail following the, uh, which is which is fine. I mean, the whole reason it worked, the whole that worked as well as it did. The whole reason I put out the podcast now. The whole reason we're doing a lot of stuff is we're struggling, man. <laughs> we're, we're, I don't know how it is on the podcast. I don't know if you're. I can't, don't listen every week, whether it's harder. I mean, you'd be talking playoffs. Mm. Right? I mean, you'd really have some stuff to really get into now. And it's changed the way everybody's done their job, uh, you know, but particularly people in the sports industry who depend totally upon what's going on now. Even if somebody wants to talk to me about the dream team, like it'll always, I always had to study up. Because they'll always say, we don't want to just talk about the pay. we got to find out what are the Rockets doing? What are the Warriors doing? What's LeBron doing? You know, that, that was your whole industry. And it's, it's, it's really different now, man. Everything is different. Totally changed. I mean, you're right. We'd be dissecting who got eliminated. What does that mean for them? Free agency, you know, all that stuff. And now it's just but all. What's going on in boxing? Are they Same talking thing. about, I mean, if there's ever a sport where, you might spread some COVID around. It would be it would be boxing. I mean, well, if if, if there's ever if there's ever a sport too where fighters just don't seem don't to care. care. Like I just I talked to I talked to one fighter who I, and I'm paraphrasing it on my notes. Basically said he'd fight through a fog of COVID if it meant he could get back in the ring. Yeah. So these and, guys and the rules uh, might be a little more. Yeah. The commissioners and stuff might be a little. The doctors. Might be a little more inclined to say, yeah, let's let the boys have at it. (laughs) (laughs) So you you have an episode coming up that addresses, I'm assuming addresses Isaiah, Jordan, that dynamic, correct? Yes. So next one on, you had said, I think the first two are available. Episode three is available on uh, Monday. Somebody put out on Twitter right before I came in geez, this whole Dream Team tape is Jack, you know, talking about how he got the interviews. And I answered him. I said, there are, dude, there are six more episodes. <laughs> I'm sorry that everything's not out. It's not streaming. We can't get <laughs> Homeland all at one time. Although maybe you do that with podcasts, right? I mean, you don't stream. It's one podcast a week kind of, right? Uh, some release in batches, but yes, mostly one podcast a week. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, that's yeah. how this one is. So episode three is kind of how the team got together. And, uh, you know, one of the questions I had to ask Jordan in the back of my mind was, I had to ask him about Isaiah, most asked question of all time. And I had to ask him about his dad. Like they're looming in my mind. And ah, 
Chris, sometimes you get lucky. <laughs> Michael, I swear, just talked about it himself. And the way he talked about it, he kind of backed into it. During the Olympics, during the qualifying tournament in Portland, John Stockton got hurt. He broke his leg, which he had a spiral leg fracture. And I don't think anybody realized how serious it was. So there came this question mark of who was going to replace him. So Michael, on his own, started talking about that. You know, and I'm not want to give away the whole episode because hopefully, you know, mm -hmm. people will listen to it. Um, but that's how he kind of started talking about Isaiah. And so he sort of backed into the answer of it. And what I will say about it is I always bring up, you know, Civil War or World War One. There's 36 reasons why it happened. They happened. But slavery was number one. If you got if you got to put number one, it's slavery. And I think the number one reason that Isaiah was not on the dream team was that Michael Jordan, who wasn't that enthusiastic about playing, didn't need it. Turned out he had a better time than he thought he would, you know, but didn't need this. His global, like he needed it for global marketing. He didn't. You know how he loves to play golf. Mm. Well, it turned out he played all the golf he wanted, got more branding, had a better time. And, and a lot of this had to do with him feeling this has to be a pleasant experience for me rather than I need it. So, yes, he was uh, a big, big part of keeping Isaiah off the Olympic team. And I can't believe the intention, the attention it still gets. I mean, I guess I kind of get it, but it's sort of demeaning in a way to Stockton. If I had Isaiah at his prime and John Stockton at his prime, I probably think Isaiah was a better player. Stockton's no dog. <laughs> You know, Stockton is the all-time leader in assists. He's up there in steals. I, he may, you may know, he may lead in steals. I mean, John Stockton's a Hall of Fame player who six years after the Dream Team was still making the finals, you know, him and Carl. But there's certainly an argument that Isaiah should have been on the Dream Team. I mean, could Chuck Daly have pushed harder, even if they knew? Well, yeah, that th that's that's what I wanted to ask. Like, because you would, I'd emailed you about this for something I wrote a couple weeks ago, and I included what you said there about Chuck and you know Chuck being Isaiah's coach, Jack McCloskey being the general manager and supposedly an influential member of that U.S. Olympic team committee. I mean, you would think that if those two went to the wall or went to the mat for Isaiah Thomas. Uh, maybe wouldn't I? Mean, I, I would think the yeah, I would think he would get on the team. Like to me, that's a bigger story than Michael not wanting to play with him. That Chuck Daly and Jack McCloskey couldn't get Isaiah on that team. I think one of the stories of this thing, Chris, is that how things change in sports. Chuck was picked. Uh, the Pistons won the championship in '89 and '90. They were sort of we all recognized that they weren't a dynasty, but they were a cagey veteran really, really smart. Yeah, they were dirty sometimes, but they were really a smart team. Isaiah was a smart player. Dumars was a smart player. Liam Beer was a smart player. They were this team that was on top of the world. So that's summer of 90. Jordan still hasn't won. Now we start to pick the team. It becomes evident during that 90-91 season, the Bulls are probably 
you know, the, Scotty's starting to play out of his butt. So Chuck Daly gets picked on Valentine's Day of 91 as the Dream Team coach. It's kind of quiet. By then, the Pistons are sort of, you know, old and kind of, well, now by the time we get to June, the Pistons aren't in the picture. The Bulls have swept them. The, you know, they walk out. I know Isaiah wants to believe he's not on the team purely because they walk. It's not that simple. It's not that simple. But it happens. They get dominated by the Bulls. The Bulls win this finals in five. It is, it is Michael's league. <laughs> you know, it's everybody else is in second place. And, and things happen very quickly in sports. You know, very quickly the Pistons went from this perch down to this perch. And Bill Lambeer, I always thought, had the most perceptive comment. He told me that, unfortunately, that we were talking in a bar restaurant, and, you, you know, it wasn't good enough to use on the podcast. But <laughs> Lambeer said to me, I'd like to know what would have happened if we picked this team a year earlier. Isaiah's in the middle of winning two championships, but the team was picked largely in the summer of 91, by which time Jordan owns the world, Pippen owns the world, Magic and Bird still own the world by dint of who they were, and the Detroit Pistons do not. And it's a sad case of timing. Uh, I, I didn't get along. Isaiah and I had our problems. I know he considered me one of those all you do is love Michael Jordan guys and you never gave us our respect. But I do feel bad uh, that he's gone all through this again. And he also can't seem to stop talking <laughs> talking about it. But maybe I would do maybe I would do the same thing. Yeah. Know? I'm not sure. But I mean, with Chuck Daly, of course, passed away in 2009. I mean, what was when you talked to him over the years about Isaiah not being on the team, what's he say? His, well, Chuck Chuck had a ready answer, just like everybody did. And Michael's answer, by the way, when, when that story came, in, this is in 91, and I wrote in Sports Illustrated in 1991, Michael Jordan told them that he didn't want to play if Isaiah was on the team because an unimpeachable source, not Jordan himself, told me that. And I never stopped believing it. The degree to which it determined Isaiah's state uh, maybe came clearer later. Chuck always had the ready answer. I mean, did you know Chuck? Well, he probably came no. up, yeah, he came a little, along yeah. a little bit before you, but Chuck, part of the reason he was a coach of this team was the way he handled stuff like that. I mean, Chuck was a, you know, he just had a knack for it. And Chuck's whole thing was, uh, well, I was only the coach. The committee picked the team. What further happened, and what I further feel Isaiah was about, the two best buddies, Laurel and Hardy over there, Chuck Daly and Michael Jordan. It was like, that, that was the golfing twosome. You know, I mean, everybody else was playing golf back then. You know, Charles played. He wasn't bad. Robinson, uh, Clyde played. Uh, David Robinson was learning the game. Um, I'm not sure anybody else, but... Every day, the twosome from San Diego through Portland qualifying through Barcelona, the magic twosome was Chuck Daly and Michael Jordan. 
I mean, that's got to be tough. I mean, the battles Isaiah went through. So the question you ask at the beginning, did they go to the mat for him? No, they didn't go to the mat for him. Magic, who was allegedly still uh, Isaiah's friend then, did not go to the mat for them. Um, so Isaiah did not have enough uh, clout among the whole surrounding environment to overcome that big thing, which was Michael. What do you, what do you think happens if John Stockton can't play? Well, I know what was going to happen. Well, a couple things. Um, when John got hurt, um, it was apparent he wasn't going to – I think he came back the third or fourth game in Barcelona. The one, one of the respect, who cares? I mean, it would have been a big deal if Michael or Scotty went down because they're, the whole key to that team was that Jordan and Pippen locked everybody down. That Chuck used to say – P.J. Carlesimo and, and Lenny and Mike Krzyzewski, they were sort of responsible for saying, well, wait, Patrick started instead of David against Croatia, so let's make sure we – and Chuck used to go, just give me Pippen and Jordan, <laughs> you know, because you couldn't score against those guys. You, you, you know, you couldn't score. They were just amazing in that tournament defensively. Anyway, I'm, I'm getting uh, away from your question. So um, what was the question again? Stockton can't play. So Stockton gets hurt. So Chuck's whole problem is how to get people in the game. So when John got hurt, he wasn't happy. But, okay, now we're down to 11 guys. Well, now you got Larry had a bad back half the time. Now you're down to 10 guys. Clyde Drexler's knees, to Clyde's credit, he didn't really complain about it. Clyde got scoped when he got back from Barcelona. So – it's easier to get – you've coached – if you ever coached a youth team, used to pray like the kids didn't show up, you know. So you only had seven kids to get in the game. So part of Chuck uh, was glad that he only had 11, 10, or 9 guys to get in the game. But the call, uh, let's just say, and I talk about it in the podcast, uh, the call would not have gone to uh, Isaiah, which is mm-hmm. further uh, – reason that I feel bad about the whole thing. Mm. Not my decision, you, but you know, still I mean, me feel as, as bad as it was, could you imagine if they went, I mean, if they did go another direction for the replacement? Like how, Joe Dumars? Like Joe, yeah, like Joe, or Bobby Hurley. Let's take Christian Leitner's teammate. Yeah, well, um, then Chuck would have said, if they picked Bobby Hurley, Chuck would have said, well, the committee told me I had to take a college guy. Yeah, that's what, <laughs> that's what uh, Chuck would have done with that one. You know, He was the master. Did, did Jack – I mean, we talked about Chuck. Did Jack McCloskey skate there? A he absolutely too? skated. He skated in kind of the same way uh, Jerry Reinsdorf, I thought, skated. on the uh, At the end of the whole thing, when Michael and Scotty have roasted Jerry Krause for nine and a half hours, we finally get the laptop given to Michael. By the way, I told my wife, whenever she wants something from me, she has to give me the laptop now. And I look at it and go, yeah, that's going to – that's almost become a meme. The classic one was the glove. Yeah. <laughs> the glove. I had no trouble with the glove. Anyway, uh, you know, we find out after nine and a half hours that, that – 
Reinsdorf never had a business conversation with Michael about this, and that Reinsdorf thought that it just wouldn't pay off, that if he had to give these guys one-year deals, you know, Robin, by the way, I think was gone into outer space, and I think Phil was gone. Phil was gone back to Montana for a year, whether or not Los Angeles was in. So the one thing that Michael, I really think, had some delusions about was they were coming back again. That's just my opinion. I can't prove that, but get no, out. I agree with you, though, but isn't it, isn't it even more delusional that Scotty was going to come back on a exactly. one-year deal? They would have had, yeah, okay, give everybody a one-year deal. With what Pippen been bit, they'd have to give him $25 million, and he wouldn't have done it. No. He would have probably set a price of, like, this is different time, you know, $10 million or something. They wouldn't have paid. They're not going to pay Scotty to do that. So, anyway, in the same way, McCloskey, I mean, the inner workings of the of the selection committee remained a little bit. The guy I talked to the most was Rod Thorne, you know, who, who tried to be as honest as he could. <laughs> But the, so the inner workings of the committee, like every committee, there were 10 people in the committee, but there were three or four who really mattered, you know, and certainly Rod was one of them. And one of the most interesting things was, you know, whether Barkley was going to be on, because when I went back and researched the book, I had forgotten myself how in the middle of barroom brawls and gun charges and unpolitic, not political statements, but, you know, un, uh, remarks that he shouldn't have made, how in the middle of all that Charles was, because he's in his final years of being pissed off in Philadelphia. You know, every time you go near him, I can't drag these assholes to the, you know, the playoffs anymore. So the committee, you know, David Stern said something to me that was very interesting. He said the people like him who are thinking about the implications of diplomacy and what we're going to look like public image wise, that's Russ Granick, great guy, uh, was vice chairman, vice, vice commissioner then, big voice on the USA Basketball Committee. Uh, and then there are basketball guys who never think you could have enough basketball players, you know, mm. and Rod who at that time, I can't remember whether he was an NBA executive or not, but he had drafted Michael Jordan. So Rod was a basketball guy, and the basketball guys wanted Charles. And they, they sort of knew, because if you gave an MVP out in Barcelona, I mean, it was Barkley. He shot 70% from the field. <laughs> I mean, Jordan was the best player, and Pippen was probably the second most important player, but Charles would have been, you know, the MVP. So there were a lot of uh, discussions like that. How much exactly Jack McCloskey could have pounded the table and said it's a disgrace that my, and he may have he may have done that, but I can tell you that it didn't get the level of needing of noise that had to be made to get Isaiah on that team just did not happen, and it certainly did not happen from Chuck Daly. May he rest in peace. One of the great guys ever. And like Jack McCloskey, and you mentioned Jan Hubbard, and I believe it was him that wrote this after the fact. He didn't believe that Jack McCloskey, you know, pounded the table or I think he's, didn't Jack like resign in, you know, in protest or something after the fact. Jack and, resigned in protest and Magic wrote a letter, wrote a letter to like kind of an open letter to 
whether or not it was an open letter to everybody or to the NBA, I sincerely hope that when the committee, you know, the committee announced 10 people in September of 91 and left two selections until May, which was, you know, horseshit. I mean, it probably wasn't very fair, but they were still trying to determine how many, I, I, I can't in retrospect remember exactly why they did it, but they were still kind of arguing about how many college kids were going to play on it. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't really exactly remember why they did it, but they didn't put Drexler on. And Drexler had a great 91-92 uh, season. So when they got to May, you know, and by this time, as I said, the Pistons had, had drifted off. So Clyde was kind of a clear pick. You know, Clyde was a good pick and they decided on one uh, college guy. Um, but anyway, Magic had written this letter that said, I sincerely hope the committee will add Isaiah Thomas to the team, not because he's my friend, but because he will contribute. Well, we later found out that that's half horse crap, that by then Magic and Isaiah had kind of fallen out for reasons that I was not the main reporter on, and I don't want to go spouting them, but it was, it's clear that magic, that that was uh, just formulaic nonsense. Mm. And as what, and Jack McCloskey's, I'm sure, was not as much nonsense. But Jan, the reporter you mentioned, Jan Hubbard, had very good sources and was reporting it every day and really had some great stuff about the committee and the dream team. And I know Jan believes that. And I tend to believe it also. It's hard for you to 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 make this kind of any kind of statement on it, but in today's game, you know, with, with Olympic teams, rivals quickly become friends, right? It's just the most of these guys have been friendly since AAU days, anyway. What would have happened if Isaiah had been on that team? Would would he have been part of the camaraderie, or would it have? have do you think? And it's all just what do you think? Would it have caused actual friction with that group? I I. I don't. And here's why. In later years, uh, I, I can't, I'm not going to compare Carmelo Anthony exactly to Isaiah. Carmelo Anthony, but Carmelo Anthony's game was, let's not even get into off the court or ego or anything like that. His game was, this is my game. This is my ball. I don't care what LeBron, that's how he played. He got on the Olympic team and he was great because he understood <laughs> Because he's, he's smart. I mean, Carmelo's a very smart player. He may, whether or not he's a Hall of Famer was always a debate for me. But he got on that team, and I, I don't want to make this sound too much like uh, I'm a coach or something. He, he knew the role. He knew this is what I got to be. I got to be the third guy. I got to be the fourth guy. And I got to play my ass off. I think Isaiah would have done that. I, I just do. Uh, there had been so much acrimony by then between the Pistons and the Bulls that I, I, understand, I understood what Jordan said. I understood that Barkley didn't really like him. I sure as hell understood that Pippen, Pippen really did not like Isaiah Thomas. You know, Michael and Isaiah had at least a thing where they were both great players. They were sort of a little bit more on a pedestal. Um, so I just think... Michael was off playing golf all the time. Um, and even within the hierarchy of the hierarchy, you know, Michael was kind of here. Now, he did play cards uh, every night 
you know, there was this card thing, Michael, Magic, Scotty, Charles, you know, kind of the first among equals. How Isaiah would have fit in and everything, I don't know, but I think he would have been fine. That just has to be my opinion. And why, I why think did he would have understood. I think he would have understood, you know, he's smart. That, you know, and, and Bird was the only one that told me this. Larry said at the end of our conversation, I always said, had that team gone along another two weeks, that things would have started to unravel. They were together the magic amount of time. You know what I mean? They had, uh, how many games would it have been? 14 games, I think six qualifiers, eight in the Olympics. They were never a consequence. They played harmoniously. Uh, they got along in practice, but they were together for this little small amount of time. You know, And Larry was honest enough to say he was already starting a little bit in the year. Well, I only played six minutes again. <laughs> you know, he was starting to hear, and nobody else told me that. And Bird was the last interview I did, so I didn't have a chance to pick up on that later on, you know. And so would Isaiah have begun to grate on everybody by the third week of the Olympics? I don't know that, but I don't think there would have been any different in the result. I don't think it would have been any different in the happiness of the team, although Jordan – as much as he danced around whether he kept them off the team, did address that in the documentary, mm -hmm. right? He said, all I will say is that the camaraderie would have been different. Mm -hmm. And Michael doesn't, he, he's more entitled to his opinion on it than I am, but he doesn't know that either. Mm -hmm. You know, Isaiah might've become, he might've become friends with Mullen. You know, he might've had a night where he went with Charles and they sort of, understood each more he might have started talking about chicago in a way that he never had a chance to with jordan because my isaiah was a child of chicago you know more than michael was so one of the things they told me was how everybody did get to know each other it wasn't like you know you alluded to it that these guys now they kind of know each other really well they played on the au circuit they made commercials together they made political statements together wasn't like that back then. David Robinson hated Carl Malone, and David Robinson has no hate in his heart. All he knew him was an opponent. Mm -hmm. And so these guys would have talked, and things would have been different, and I'm sure that's part of Isaiah's uh, regret mm -hmm. that he didn't get the chance to do that. Well, why was why was the animosity so much stronger with Scotty than with Michael? Well, I you know, Scotty... I mean, Michael... This gets to the root of Scotty and Michael. I mean... The first interview I did for the book was was uh, Scotty, and uh, he he was. I had never really spent that much time with him. I admitted to him, you know, Jordan was so prevalent that I had written three hundred and ten stories about the Bulls. I don't think I sat down and had talked to Scotty more than ten minutes or something, you know. And he said something like, uh, "Well, all this time we were going through this, we'd lose." And, it, and Michael always came out okay. You know, it wasn't Michael failed to do this. It was Scotty and Horace and uh, B.J. Armstrong and Doug Collins when he was – it was always somebody else. So I think that always stuck in Scotty's mind that, okay, yeah, the Pistons were beating the crap out of us, and I had the migraine game when people thought I was faking – 
yeah, Jordan was on all those teams, but nobody ever thought of him as a loser. They thought of me as the loser. They thought of me as the one that the Pistons had my number. Now, that's not completely true because the Jordan rules, as we all know. But you know and I know that Michael always came out on top. Mm -hmm. That it was Scotty. And I probably wrote that too. I was probably – Jordan's talent, you know, was so ascendant. I mean – He's the only guy I've ever written about that uh, you didn't have to get anything from him off the court. I mean, you could, but his talent was so ascendant that uh, it, it was hard, you know, to, to stay away from it, that it was a irresistible thing. And Scotty was sort of the direct opposite. Scotty became something I think is really unique, which was a complimentary superstar, that he's a superstar but he was always that other guy, right? Mm-hmm. You know, he was never he was never the alpha. I guess a little bit like Stockton and Malone, but you could never pick out of those guys who was exactly the the guy. Scotty and Michael, you could pick out who the guy was, you know. <laughs> did did you obviously Jordan was able to separate you from Sports Illustrated when he sat down and discussed the book with you. Um how you know that wasn't your story, the Baggett Michael story. You didn't. That was Steve Wolf, who wrote that story and has actually subsequently said maybe I was too hard on Michael, which is well. You know, there's been this interesting. I'm not going to call it revisionist history. When I was writing the blog about the Jordan thing, I I said I had a sentence in there that said I don't feel I'm qualified enough. Michael Swing to me looked like he would never make the major leagues, but I didn't want to make some batting us. But Steve Wolf, who knows baseball, and Tom Verducci who really knows baseball, wrote a great piece in Sports Illustrated breaking down where he thought, let's not count this guy out. That, you know, he's the, the most competitive jackass in the world, for one thing, you know, and he's got this supernatural talent. So what happened with Baggett Michael was that I ended up not covering, I sort of wanted to get away from the league. Larry had come back from Barcelona and retired. Magic had HIV, subsequently retired, unretired, then quickly retired again. Michael walked away in 93. Nobody noticed this in the world, but Jack McCallum walked away for a couple of years. You know, I edited the scorecard section because I didn't think the league was interesting enough. And I came back when Michael was a wizard. So the first time I saw him again, I think I had run into him a couple of times, but nothing. And I, the first time I saw him back was he was a wizard. And I remember this. It was a Saturday morning shoot around. And I was over there. I don't know why. And we started talking. And I said to him something like, uh, so are you more of a small forward now? Or are you still, how do you thread that needle between always being on the perimeter but getting it? He goes, he looks at me, he goes, are you asking me now for Sports Illustrated? <laughs> I said, yeah, man. I got my notebook out. And he shut it off. So when I went back to do the book, um, you know, when I asked for an interview, you got, yeah, you know, I don't, I don't call Michael Sell. There's some people I call, but I don't call Michael, uh, you know, Estee Portnoy, who's his very formidable gatekeeper. I said, tell Michael, it doesn't have anything to do with Sports Illustrated, which it didn't. They weren't the publisher. <laughs> I wasn't working there. I mean, I know he still associated me with the magazine, but, uh, and he was fine, you know, but if I would have been 
like still a writer there, still covering the Hornets, Bobcats, whatever they were. Uh, I don't know. I don't know, but I did not wear my Sports Illustrated button on the day that uh, I interviewed him for it. Are you, are you surprised, you know, you weren't on the beat during that time necessarily, but you were obviously working at the magazine. Were you surprised at how, that he took the grudge that far, that he took it so personally that it to this day, it is something that still bothers him? A, a little, yes, a little bit. But it see, to me, it was part and parcel of pragmatic decision that as early as 91, I had done this story when Mike, when we named him Sportsman of the Year, I did this story with him and he just started talking about his image and how he understood people were getting tired of it. And if I would have known back then that I shouldn't have been this, you know, that people didn't want, but I thought they didn't want Mike Tyson. He started like really looking introspective and then this continued. And then 93 happened with Richard Esquinas and Slim Buller had happened by then. Sam Smith's The Jordan Rules had happened by then. So one of the themes in 93, I distinctly remember this, how often I got to write about it, I don't know, was I had the feeling Jordan was getting, he was a completely different person. And I always said that Bird came into the league and he's one way, he sort of went out the same way, kind of a crusty, folksy guy. Magic came in as the CEO, this is my team, Let's get everybody together. Kumbaya. He went out that way also. Michael, completely different. Completely different guy. So this idea of shutting out Sports Illustrated was legitimately 60% of it. However, 40% of it was he started shutting out everybody. This was one less person uh, I didn't have to talk to. By then, the only person he really liked, you know, me a little bit, was Walter Yost you know, the great photographer, but how many more times I don't need to cover anymore. I don't need to be on the cover. I'm making $45 million off. You know, I don't need it. I don't need SI. I don't need Sam Smith. I don't even really need ESPN as much. So part of it, I think Chris fit into that whole narrative. Uh, But I'll say this about Jordan. He stayed consistent. <laughs> he has not. And I, I didn't get the fallout of it. It just, once again was so lucky because Phil Taylor took over the beat. And so Phil, I think, was covering during those. That was the three-peat years that were the concentration of the documentary. You know, Phil, I, I don't remember part and parcel of what he did, but he had to deal with this. And I know Rick Riley, you know, being the most clever guy ever, went on a Bulls road trip and during the Michael thing and somehow got a story when it looked like, you know, Michael was a big part of it. But I don't, you know, Rick didn't have a one-on-one full out with him, I don't think. Uh, Mm. But that's the closest probably he had shown to a little detente until I talked to him, you know, for the book. Mm. Crazy. All these years. You're right. Still consistent. Still consistent, Michael Jordan. Uh, Jack, the Dream Team Tapes, terrific podcast. First two episodes are out. They're out every – what day do they drop each Monday, week? I, I love when, when listening to your voice on the podcast, it sounds like sometimes you're waiting for a word that you don't quite understand to come up there. Like, as, as the kids say, or this is going to drop on this day. Yeah, right. Well, 
you gotta, uh, I just felt that, um, you know, somebody told me once about doing a podcast, I'm sure you know better than I do. Um, you gotta kind of make it your own. And Mm -hmm. I didn't want to pretend I was anybody else except the 70 year old guy who's telling a story from 28 years ago and sound ultra hip and everything. And on episode four, a fair warning, I actually sing a bar of something. And when I got out of singing, the engineer in New York where we were, I come out of the booth and he's a young kid, younger than you even. And he kind of looks at me and goes, all right, man. I said, did you like that? He goes, well, you got guts. (laughs) I guess that was... uh, the singing is, does not constitute very much time, by the way. Probably about 12 <laughs> seconds. I look forward to that in episode four. Uh, Jack, great job, man. Always good to talk to you, and I'm looking forward uh, to each episode every single week. All right. I appreciate it, Chris. Thank you. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a walk-off grand slam or a base hit to center field. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Being a chef means keeping your cool in the kitchen. And with Resi Priority Notify and Global Dining Access through my Amex Platinum card, right this way, it's nice to try someone else's food for a change. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex.